Well, we have much to celebrate uh, from this past week. Uh, maybe you aren't aware of it uh, in terms of the news of what has been going on over this past week. But we had Vacation Bible School, and I am bone weary from Vacation Bible School because it was great. Uh, I don't care to sing River of Life ever again. Um, my thighs are burning from being in the, the gush position all week long. Uh, but in addition to that, just so that you can hear a report of what's happened, we had 86 campers over this past week. And uh, we also, those 86 campers brought in $1,336 for Next Step Farms uh, to help that ministry. Uh, and in addition to that, all 87 of those uh, campers were loved uh, unconditionally by their workers. Uh, in fact, if you had stood out here on the last day and watched these children climb all over their workers, you would know that they were loved and dealt with with a great deal of patience. But more importantly, 87 campers heard the gospel on multiple occasions all week. They learned the difference, as Brian had been teaching them all week, that the opposite of fear is faith. And I can't think of a better message that our children need to hear right now in these troubling times then that the opposite of fear is our faith, to place it in God. We have some other good news as well. Uh, Carter Ash is making his debut here at the church. If you haven't met the Ashes, you'll get a chance to meet them a little bit later on. But I got word just as I was walking into the church this morning that Josie and Ethan Moore, who have been visiting with us for the last six months, their son Braxton was born this morning at 546. So again, more joyful news, more blessings here at Providence. Let's go to the Father and let's allow him to prayer our hearts uh, with such a good God. Lord, we recognize that the reason we celebrate fatherhood this morning is because we have a good God who serves as a father to us. And so, Lord, we want to submit ourselves right now to hear from you, to listen to your word, for it to shape and correct our hearts, Lord. And, Lord, we want to fall in love with your son, Jesus, all the more, precious Jesus, who has allowed us, Lord, to be able to enter into your presence by his shed blood. What great love you have for us. So allow us to worship you, Lord, not because of the things that, that you provide us, Lord, but because of the very character and the very nature of the type of God you are. We love you and we honor you on this day, your day. Amen. Well, I'm excited in our study of Matthew's gospel as we launch into a brand new section this morning. If, if you're not with us when we started this book, let me explain what I mean. Matthew begins with a prologue, and he ends with the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. But in between those two events, Matthew provides us with five distinct sections telling his readers what Jesus did and what he taught throughout his life. And each one of these divisions alternates with a narrative about Jesus' activities, and then it's followed by an extended discourse given by our Lord. So, for example, last week we just concluded the third teaching in Matthew 13, where Jesus spoke four parables to the crowd and four additional parables to his disciples. And this week, we will begin the fourth major section. And once again, we will start by seeing what Jesus did within this new narrative. Now, you can see these divisions on your outline on the back of the worship guide. And you can see how they alternate between narratives and discourse within each section. 
And I like the way that D.A. Carson entitles this next part, so I'm going to borrow it. Some might say steal, but I'm giving him credit, so I'm just borrowing it. He calls it the glory and the shadow. The glory and the shadow. Jesus is revealing more of the Father's marvelous plan for the kingdom of heaven. And more of his own personal glory is on display. And in this upcoming narrative, we will read of Jesus miraculously feeding over 5,000 people. We'll see that he's walking on water and Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Wonderful stuff. And yet Jesus is getting closer to the cross. Its ominous shadow is always in the background being cast on what Jesus has done. And from the outset of Matthew, once the good news of Jesus' coming has been proclaimed, there is an increasing polarization among the populace. People either accept Jesus as Messiah or they reject him, seeing him as a threat to their present way of living. There is no neutrality with Jesus. And this is very clear from the opening scene of this new section. We find it the last part of Matthew 13 here at verse 53. And these six verses form a transition that's called a Janus in literary circles. Now, you may be wondering why I get just a little bit technical here and providing some jargon. But part of my job is not only to teach you the truth of the Bible, but to teach you how to understand the Bible on your own. So some of these literary terms are necessary. Now, the word Janus is actually taken from a Roman pagan god of the same name. And Janus was supposedly the god of doorways or the god of new beginnings. He was often depicted with two faces, one looking forward and then one also looking backward. And as a literary device, the word Janus describes a transition that takes in mind what preceded it and is also looking towards the next scene. And Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, is a Janus transition. Matthew is going to build upon Jesus' parables concerning discipleship and then towards its future where the general population who were once enamored with Jesus now begin to openly resent him. Now, we've already seen some of this dislike and hatred among the religious leaders. Places like back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, where the Pharisees conspired to destroy Jesus. But in this new section, the general population will begin to pull away from Jesus. As we saw last week in John 6, even some of Jesus' followers begin to disassociate themselves from him and his teachings because they feel that it's just a little too difficult. It's too uncomfortable. And if his current disciples continue to follow him as they strive for the kingdom of heaven, then they too will encounter the same resentment. Remember, Jesus warned them of such back in Matthew chapter 10. They will need to endure and they will need to persevere. So within this opening scene, I want us to take in the setting, then look at what the people in general were saying about Jesus, followed by Jesus' personal response to it, and then conclude with just a few applications. So that's where we're headed this morning. The setting, the general understanding of Jesus, how Jesus responds, and then a few applications for today. Well, let's take a look at where this was occurring because it's important to our interpretation. We need to locate where he was to begin with. From chapter 13, verse 1, we learn that Jesus was by the seashore delivering his four-parable sermon. And most likely, this was near his base of operations, which was the city of Capernaum, just off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Then in verse 36, we learn that Jesus entered back into a house, most likely back to Capernaum and perhaps Peter's house. 
he went back to that house to speak privately with his disciples. And now, after that discourse, according to verse 53, Jesus departs from that location to travel inward toward Nazareth, his hometown. Now, this was not his birthplace. His birthplace was Bethlehem. We learned that back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. But Nazareth was the place of Mary and Joseph's home. And it's where Jesus had been raised since he was a small child. And by this point in the narrative, it was highly probable that the people of Nazareth had known Jesus for nearly 30 years. They were the ones most acquainted with Jesus and his family. And as such, they would have been highly qualified to offer an opinion on how Jesus was perceived by those that were around him. And in our text this morning, at verse 54, we see Jesus enter into the local synagogue. Now, to be certain that everyone understands, a synagogue is not a mini temple here. There was only one temple. There was only one location that sacrifices were to be made, and that was in the city of Jerusalem, due south, in, due south of Galilee in the region of Judea. A synagogue was a teaching station. It is where everyday Jews came to learn the words of God as found in the Old Testament. It's believed that the prophet Ezra established the synagogue tradition in Judea just after the Babylonian exile so that the general population could be instructed in the law and the prophets. It's not quite what we would classify as a church, but people would gather on the Sabbath day and have portions of the Old Testament read to them and then perhaps offer a lesson on that word. And as verse 54 here tells us, Jesus is doing his primary activity within the synagogue. He is teaching. That is what our own contemporary world also misunderstands about Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't just come to do miracles, but he also came to reveal truth. He is the very word of God. As we've already seen, the miracles confirm the message. Of first importance to Jesus was to teach about the kingdom of God, what it is, and how one becomes a citizen of it. That is vital information that has eternal ramifications. And Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable or to accommodate our desires. He wanted to be heeded and to be obeyed. And as he was teaching, his audience's reaction here again in verse 54 was one of astonishment. The Greek word is precisely as it's translated here in your Bibles. It means to be amazed or, or to be stunned or, or to be struck. It's a morally neutral word. One might observe a child being born into the world and they might say that they were amazed at the event. Or one might observe a horrible car accident and be stunned by the destruction of what they witnessed. They are taken aback. They are struck by seeing something that they had not experienced before. And they're asking here of themselves a series of questions. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, before we get into what these questions imply, I think we can infer a few facts by the types of questions that they were asking of themselves. These were people that knew Jesus and were well acquainted with his family. So much so that they knew his adopted father's profession and his mother's first name. They could name and identify Jesus' siblings. They knew Jesus very well. 
This is typical small town life where everyone knows general information about one another. I see this all the time when I go visit my in-laws up in Tennessee for family gatherings. As adults, Lisa and I live and work in my in-laws' little uh, small town. It's inevitable that we will begin discussing the latest news on people that we know. And in those conversations, my brother-in-law, who, who never lived there, becomes an outsider. He is listening patiently, but he has no clue who we are talking about. Who is related to who? What does so-and-so do as a profession? How this tragedy or this success might have affected an individual? But we do because we're intimately acquainted with that small town's life. And the people of Nazareth knew Jesus and his family very well. But before I get to what the questions reveal of their knowledge, we, consider, we should consider here what they do not say here. Jesus is teaching from the scriptures, and not a single person says, well, who is this guy to be standing before us, telling us what God wants from us, considering what he has done? There is no scandal in Jesus' background. There is no skeleton in his closet. No one accuses him of sin like, well, isn't that the guy that got her pregnant? Or isn't this the man who had to be bailed out of jail? Or isn't this man that delusional lunatic that always made up stories all the time? Because if that had been the case, it would have been very easy to discredit Jesus and write off what he was teaching. But no one did. Nor did these questions show that they were proud to have Jesus home. There wasn't a, well, here comes Jesus. Here comes the one that has showed so much promise. Boy, did we miss him. He's back and look how successful he's become. He has loads of followers. We knew he had it in him. They neither disparage his background, nor do they praise him. Instead, these questions imply that Jesus had a very common upbringing. He was known as the carpenter's son, a common tradesman. They might say, well, we used to see him come around here with his father on the occasional odd job. He was that kid that always had sawdust in his hair. We know his siblings, his brothers and his sisters. In fact, his sisters just live right down the street. And unlike the false pseudo-gospels, like the infancy gospel of Thomas or the Islamic Quran that portray Jesus doing miracles at childhood, such as making little clay birds and then blowing his breath upon them and they came to life and they flew away, these questions seem to indicate that Jesus was not known to do miracles before this. They ask in verse 56, where then did this man get all of these things? No, their, their questions reveal that Jesus was rather ordinary. He did not necessarily display any special talents, nor was he a behavioral problem. I imagine that Jesus was that nice, quiet kid that's always polite, always willing to help the one you probably always called upon to recite the memory verse of the week. But he was never drawing attention to himself. And I would say that the prophet Isaiah captured his disposition perfectly when he wrote these words. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. No, to his hometown folk, up to this point, Jesus was just an ordinary guy. But now he had returned and there was something different about him. Like Matthew 4, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And also in Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29, and the crowds were astonished. 
The same word that we have here in verse 54. Astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now that Jesus had returned home, he, he had an entourage. Folks flocked to him. People wanted to hear his opinions on matters. and In some ways, he had become quite the attraction. They wanted to see what, what he would do. Jesus was rocking the boat of the religious establishment. And ultimately, we can see which side the people of his hometown landed on with Matthew verse 13, verse 57. Or Matthew chapter 13, verse 57. And they took offense at him. We might ask why. Why were they offended? Why didn't they welcome back the hometown hero? Well, the answer to that question can be answered on three different levels. First, Jesus was not the type of person that left you the option of straddling the fence. You were either for him or you were against him. And that is the nature of faith. Faith demands that you make a choice. And when you make that choice, you are not only choosing a particular option, but you are denying yourself the other options. For example, I have faith that I can get home today in my personal vehicle. I have sufficient reason to believe that I can do that. It got me here this morning. I know that it has the necessary requirements to operate. It has gasoline, a battery, the safety features. So when I leave today, I have a choice. I either have faith in my truck or I choose that option alone or I choose another option. My faith can truly only be in one means or the other. As talented as I am, I cannot straddle two vehicles on my way home especially after I've been doing the gush position all week at ABS. But it's the same with religion too, right? When it comes to religion, one might say, I choose not to have faith. But you still made a choice by denying the option of faith. You might have chosen to believe something like, well, if there is a God, he's going to be nice enough to let me in because he's casual like that. Or maybe you think there's nothing after death. Well, you have chosen one thing and you have rejected the others. That is the nature of faith. And Jesus always pushes his listeners to a point of decision. You either accept him, all of him for who he is, or you reject him. It's that simple. The second reason they don't welcome him back is that spiritual truths are not discerned by the natural man. One needs the intercession of the Spirit's work in their heart. Our sin blinds us to truth. And due to our sin nature, not everyone receives the Spirit. We saw this in Matthew 13, verses 11 through 15, when the Lord answered why he spoke in parables. He answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and I would heal them. The Apostle Paul wrote the same truth to the Corinthians residing in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also one comprehends the thoughts of God, or no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might, we, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now get this, verse 14 of this passage. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you ever wonder why the world has gone crazy? Why things that seem blatantly obvious to us that we should act in a certain way, behave in a certain way, truths that seem to be perfectly normal and natural, and yet the natural man doesn't get it? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is to instruct him. But we, meaning regenerated Christians, we have received the mind of Christ. Not everyone in Nazareth was capable of hearing nor receiving the truth. They were blind to the Spirit of God as he revealed truth to them. But the biggest hurdle for the Nazarenes was Jesus' response in verse 57. And once again, with this answer, Jesus is confrontational. He doesn't leave them with the option of straddling the fence. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. A prophet was one who spoke on behalf of God. Just like we read in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah had a rather unpleasant message to proclaim, they rejected him as well as the message from God. And the Nazarenes either accepted that Jesus spoke for the Lord as he did not, or he did not. And Jesus alludes that it is likely that the hometown and the household will reject the prophet. Why? Why? Well, in a word, due to familiarity. In Nazareth, they could say, well, we know Jesus. We've witnessed him since he was a little boy. Yeah, he was a good kid, but the Messiah? I mean, we've heard his message. It's wise, but come on. This is Jesus we're talking about. We, we remember when he built his first birdhouse, how he played with my son. We, we saw him skin his knee. His brothers wore his hand-me-downs. We know his mother, his, his brothers, his sisters. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. In fact, making the claims he has, we kind of think Jesus has gotten too big for his britches here. Well, I have a friend. He lives in the country of Wales. He works for a missions agency that put him in a port city to work with asylum seekers there, mainly Muslims that come there from North Africa and the Middle East. And he's had strong success among the Sudanese and the Ethiopians and the Somalians. And I asked him, I said, well, have you ever had success among the indigenous Welsh people there? And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, no, I've tried that, but I discovered that they've been inoculated with the gospel. And what he meant was the concepts of Jesus, the Bible, the church, and even terms like the gospel had become so familiar to the Welsh that they refused to listen mainly because they thought they were aware of them enough already. 
I couldn't help but think that we too, in our Christian nation of America, have become inoculated with the gospel. People think they know what it is, so they're unwilling to listen. Americans, Alabamians, Huntsvillians, they think they know. But they're content, so they say, well, no, I'll choose to believe whatever I want to believe to. Even though it's the only thing that can save their soul from eternal damnation. To the familiar, it's a message of love that's easily refused. Again, let me remind you, these are everyday people, not the religious leaders. And because the people rejected him, we see the consequences in the last verse of the chapter, verse 58. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. This was not because they lacked enough faith to produce a miracle, as though Jesus somehow needed their faith to provide the energy to do the miraculous. You know, kind of like in Peter Pan at the end of it when the audience is asked to clap in order to bring Tinkerbell back to life. No. It was because of their lack of belief in him. They refused to believe Jesus was special with a message from God. And since there was no belief in the message, there's no need for miracles to affirm the message. But we may note that Jesus still proclaimed the kingdom of God in their synagogue regardless of their unbelief. That was his M.O. He always did so. But it was not to him that was the problem. It was their own choice not to believe. Whether or not Jesus conducted a miracle made no difference in their choice one way or the other. And we'll see that same lack of belief in the next four chapters despite the extravagant miracles that Jesus conducts. It shows us just how deadly sin can be. It blinds us. It, it paralyzes us. We need the grace of God to open our eyes to see the spiritual state of ourselves for what it truly is. So as we launch into this new section, there are several applications that we can take away from the text. And I'm going to offer four general ones for all of us, and then I'm going to offer four specific applications. For the general ones, let me begin with those first. Number one, let me just ask, will you engage to see what Jesus is doing? Will you engage to see what Jesus is doing or will you turn away towards something else because you think you already know all there is to know about Jesus? Will you tune out because you saw that episode before? Or will you say, Holy Spirit, Open my eyes so I can see Jesus for who he truly is. Each day that you get into the word, will you ask the spirit to remove the scales so that you can see clearly the Jesus that is proclaimed in front of you so that you just don't become too familiar with what you understood to know about Jesus in the past. Allow the word to reveal it to you. The second application you must arrive at a choice in what you understand about Jesus. He is either truly the Son of God, very God himself, or he is a madman. He's one or the other. He is either who he claims to be, or he had been lying about who he claimed to be. And if he is who he claimed to be, and you have made that choice, you cannot straddle the fence saying, well, on some days I'm going to choose that Jesus is the Son of God, and on other days I'm going to act like it just doesn't matter to me at all. You must make a choice. 
Your faith must be in something. Application number three, there is a cost to following Jesus. If they rejected him, they will reject you. So if you choose to follow Jesus, you will become countercultural. You'll become countercultural. Right now, our society tells us over and over again, you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do, and don't worry about the limitations the federal government's going to provide for those limitations. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. And yet Jesus is saying, no, the Father requires these things for you. He's the one that dictates truth, and you must conform to the Father's will in your life. And so if you choose to go that route, if you put your faith in that, then know that you're going to be put in some uncomfortable situations that will make you countercultural, different from what your culture is going to tell you to believe. And you should expect it. You, you don't get angry at it. You should know this, this is because I follow Jesus that I'm treated this way. Which brings us to the fourth general application. If that's the case, and, and you truly are being countercultural, it can't just be that you're angry at culture. You must also share Jesus with those you come in contact with. He is the only answer, the only answer right now to the sin of this world. We can legislate laws all we want to, but it's hearts that must be changed, and hearts can only be changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was constant in teaching about the kingdom of God, whether people chose to believe him or not. And that should also be our practice to do the same. So those are our four general revelations, our four general uh, applications from our text. But I want to get to four specific ones. And I want this to be a challenge specifically for our fathers on this day. And so dads, I, I want to say this to you. And, and perhaps you're not a dad. That's okay. Take notes. All right, because there's some things that I think you want to discuss with your dad later on. But I want to encourage you, dads. I want to encourage you. I, I want you to know the world beats you up, and they downplay the concepts of fatherhood because they hate biblical masculinity, and they hate authority. I get that. But being a biblical dad is countercultural. Society and its sin nature will oppose what God desires. But dads, let me tell you, you are a gift to your family. You are such a gift. And I want to encourage you to be that gift. You were granted the great privilege of implementing, implementing the Deuteronomy 6 mandate, of being able as you go throughout life, no matter what you're doing, to be able to show how God has a purpose for us and how God wants us to live. And the Apostle Paul would reinforce that mandate in Ephesians chapter 6. So this is only applicable here to what I'm going to say to uh, Christian fathers, but here's what you can do specifically. First of all, I wanted to tell you this, because I know that so many dads face this pressure. Don't be perfect, be faithful. Don't be perfect, be faithful. Jesus preached back in Matthew chapter 5, that God demands holy perfection that you cannot provide on your own. 
You must rely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I know that you feel like you've got to, to maintain some standard of living that is even higher than Jesus at times. But don't get confused. You're not Jesus. You are Jesus' representative, yes, in your families, but you are not the Christ. Show them who the Christ is, that when you mess up, when you blow it, that you come before Jesus and you say, Lord, I messed up today. And I'm not counting on me to rise to perfection. I'm counting that Jesus has already supplied perfection for me already. Because if you don't show that to them, if you don't reveal that to your children, they're going to think it's about maintaining a behavioral standard rather than resting in the righteousness of Christ. This doesn't mean don't strive for excellence. By all means, strive for excellence. But strive for faithfulness first. Faithfulness in Jesus Christ and what he has already done. Show them the way to the Savior by you being faithful to rest in him. Second application, fathers, be truthful. Share truth with your children. The world is confusing them right now. And, and I know there is pressure to just, I just don't want to talk about it. It makes me angry. It frustrates me. I get that. But if you don't supply the truth, the world will supply its version. So take the opportunity to share truth with your children over and over and over again. And it does begin with, this world is fallen. I am fallen. You are fallen. But God has provided a redeemer to pull us out of this mess. And when he redeems us, he wants us to be able to serve him. Start with that. Second, or third, sorry, third application. Set an example in suffering. Set an example in suffering. Be willing to deny yourself so that God might be glorified. Don't set an example of selfishness, but set an example in suffering. Allow your children to see that God is worthy. Allow them to see that. And fourth, don't allow Jesus to become mundane to your children. Don't allow Jesus to become mundane to your children. Invigorate yourself in the passion of the Gospels. Be passionate about Jesus. Show them that Jesus really is a Savior. And the reason I say that is too often it just seems so hard. We'd rather watch the football game than be here at church. We'd rather be distracted with the things of the world than to be with Jesus. But Jesus is just so much, so beautiful. Dedicate yourself to the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. Be willing to follow him even despite the way the culture treats him. And let me tell you, if you do that, that presents an exciting Jesus. A Jesus that's worth following. So dads, I want to encourage you I want you to know you are a gift. You are a blessing. And even though you feel like, ah, this is so hard right now, I want you to know God has placed you exactly where you are right now. He has decreed exactly where you're at in this moment so that you can be a blessing to your families. Kids, mothers, wives, encourage 
your dads. It's a tough time on them. They need to know they have your support. Let them hear you praying for them aloud. Just like they have your back, let them know you have their back in this too. Pray for them to be faithful, not perfect. Forgive them if they didn't meet up your expectations. I get that. But pray for their faithfulness in the gospel. Pray for them to be truthful. Pray for them to persevere in the face of this world. And pray for them that Jesus would never become mundane in their eyes, but that Jesus would be all in all to them, that they would be excited and passionate about following him. Pray for them as we do that. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. (laughs) He shows us the way. And Lord, even though he was in the midst of people that didn't want to believe him, that didn't want to choose him, he didn't act differently than what he has done in the past. He showed his complete reliance upon you in those moments. He demonstrated his willingness to be mistreated and to suffer in that moment. He still spoke the truth in that moment. And yet, Lord, he was still passionate about following you. He didn't give up. He still pursued you with all that he had, even to the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that for ourselves, that, Lord, you would work in such a way that you would open all of us up to see Jesus for who he is, that we would engage the living Jesus Christ, and that by doing that, we would choose to put our faith in him, that we would be willing to suffer and endure the ridicule of this world and being able to follow him. And then also, Lord, that we would be bold in proclaiming that the remedy to our sin is Jesus Christ and his atonement on the cross. So, Lord, may Christ be magnified in our lives and in our hearts. We pray this according to the finished work of Jesus alone. Amen.